It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, being the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episodes, enough by-election chat about what happened last week. When is everyone else in the country going to get to vote? When should Rishi Sunak go to the country? Does he go early, like Theresa May, and risk all of that? Or cling on for as long as possible, like John Major, and risk all of that? That's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at what's going on in the news with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And as we always are on a Monday, we're joined by the Times columnist Libby Purvis. Hi, Libby. Hello. We had a guest who once left a pig's head on a train. <laughs> I, want to, I need more details. We were, we were farming and he was a sculptor staying with us and he was desperate to have a pig's head uh, in order to, to improve a sculpture of his. And um, we got him one and he left it on the train on the way home. That's, a, that's, a, that, that's given somebody a fright where they've peered into the carrier bag. Bet it did. Oh, is this Bet a football? It did. Uh, and we're also joined by uh, political journalist Steve Richards, presenter of the Rock and Roll Politics podcast. Hi, Steve. Hi, Matt. I didn't realise the opening we had to come up with a <laughs> head equivalent, and I'm, I'm struggling. At Have the you moment. ever lost anything I'm, on a train, Steve? I'm trying to think. Uh, what a what a start! It's impossible to top that at the moment. But I, I think a pig's head. A pig's head is pretty good. A pig's head is pretty, pretty good. Pretty high bar. Let's move on and talk about Michael Gove. Why not? Uh, seamlessly, seamlessly. Uh, the levelling <laughs> up secretary, Michael Gove, has been speaking this morning, setting out the government's plans to build more homes. We are unequivocally, unapologetically and intensively concentrating our biggest efforts in the hearts of our cities because that's the right thing to do economically, environmentally and culturally. As my colleague Neil O'Brien argued in his landmark study for the think tank Onward on housing, green, pleasant and affordable, cities are where the demand for housing is greatest. It's better for the environment, the economy, for productivity and for well-being if we use all of the levers that we have to promote urban regeneration rather than swallowing up virgin land. So, uh, Libby, is this a good idea? Does it... I mean, I, oh, part of me feels like... How many times have I heard... Uh, we looked at... Was it 2012? David Cameron announced you could have an extension without planning permission. You know, at various points, people have said you could do your lofts. Is this... It, does this amount to a major overhaul of our, plan, of our house-building ambitions? 
Well, I, uh, tackling brownfield wasted space, which there is a lot of, and shuttered shops and space above shops and so on, it does need to be done. It would be useful, but it always involves confronting big money and big companies. And I think he's right that developing affordable social housing, affordable rentals in cities should be a really tight priority because that is where work is, where people want to live. Um, it, but it's quite hard to create this sort of, you know, are we going to create blue water, you know, between us and, and Labour and Tories saying, do we need blue water between us and the Tories that way? Because actually, um, I, I think that's difficult because I, I think Labour will probably have an almost identical policy will come up. But the Conservatives are bad at confronting big developers and big companies. And that is one of the things which Michael Gove will have to do if he means this. Um, Steve, I, I was quite surprised that they seem to be putting all their eggs in the uh, converting offices into flats baskets. I thought we'd already been. I thought we'd already reached the point where we'd had the horror stories of people who were living in offices which had been converted to flats, and their children were playing in what used to be a car park. Yeah, and we go round and round in circles. Michael Gove is right to identify a huge problem, the lack of affordable housing in cities, and it interconnects with everything else that's going on. The reason why you get these big pay demands from uh, nurses or teachers and so on is partly to do with the astronomical cost of housing in cities because there is such a chronic shortage. But I'm a kind of... <laughs> I've followed these housing initiatives and see them come to nothing. Um, and by the way, I think Labour's plans to turbocharge the planning system, I'm wary of because they'll have MPs in marginal seats saying we don't want it uh, where we are, and on it goes. Um, there needs to be, more than speeches, a huge amount of political will to address the housing shortage problem and the capacity for joined up government. In other words, it clearly involves the housing minister, but it in involves liaising with local government, with uh, 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 people responsible for getting, for dealing with labour shortages and so on. It, it's huge. And I don't think it will happen. And ultimately, Libby, isn't, isn't the enthusiasm for doing things in cities because the, the Tory party won't confront its base in rural areas because ultimately we probably need to build more homes there? Well, you only need to build a lot more homes in rural areas if you are going to create work in rural areas. You know, and this is one of the things that we're not really, really terribly good at. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we talk about the working from home and so on, but basically there is the, the cities will always exist and the cities should be made both livable and affordable and beautiful and energetic and that's what it all should be about and a lot of things stand in the way many things stand in the way the fact that successive governments including this one have been perfectly happy to pimp out london new build great blocks of flats to dirty money from abroad um i mean that happens constantly still you know we we don't uh, we, we we don't have this sort of <clears throat> you know the, the grit that say the danes have to sort of say no you know you cannot buy in the city unless you are going to live there contribute and work there so i i think <clears throat> you know it's the, the rural versus urban thing is a bit of a fake you know yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fake argument the cities do matter and they matter to people in the countryside as well well, yeah, exactly right, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, it, I think we've, we've sort of settled on the idea that maybe this big speech from Michael Gove might just be something to fill recess rather than a major a major uh, uh, reset. Um, let's move on, because I want to talk about uh, tactical voting. 
Um, obviously, we, we clearly we saw that last week in the uh, in the by-elections where Labour collapsed in Somerton and Foom to the benefit of the Lib Dems. <coughs> Lib Dems collapsed in Selby to the benefit of the Labour Party. Um, but I was quite taken by... I spoke to Ed Davey on the show on Friday and just tried to ask him out, right, what he would do in a seat where the Lib Dems were up against uh, the Labour Party. And it sounded quite a lot like the candidate might be on their own. Let's just take a listen. I'm not going to uh, tell people what to do. They can make up their own minds. We'll put forward our candidates. We'll put forward our, our policies. Why won't you say vote I, I, Lib Dem? Well, I want to vote. I want everyone to vote Lib Dem. Of course I do. But what I will do is we have limited resources, as you know. You know we don't get ex-Egyptian government ministers giving us £5 million pounds like the Tories do. So we have to put our limited resources in places where we think we can win. But it's interesting that if there's a seat with a choice between Lib Dems and Labour, it sounds like you're not going to bother in those seats and you're going to co- concentrate on Tory facing seats. We're going to have a, a candidate there who's going to fly the Liberal Democrat flag and be proud to do so. But alone, so. by the sound of it. Uh, well, <laughs> listen, you're, you're putting words into my mouth. We're going to go and fight where we think we've got the best chances. I mean, he's pretty honest, Steve. When I said to him, in a Lib Dem Labour seat, what should people do? And he said, I'm not going to tell people what to do, which isn't normally yeah. what a party leader would say. Yeah, that, that's a good interview, I'm, and I'm, I'm, it, I hadn't heard it before. And it's, that is very interesting because he's basically pursuing exactly the same policy that Paddy Ashdown pursued for the Lib Dems in the build-up to 1997, where they were almost overtly part of a sort of anti-Tory movement and didn't try very hard in Labour seats. And he almost said that to you, which I thought was... Uh, very interesting. The, the tactical voting thing, I think, was the most interesting element of the whole by-election uh, frenzy of recent days, because I'm, you, you, I heard a whole series of Tories, oh, Labour did lost their deposit in uh, Somerton and Froome, and what a disaster. That showed tactical voting really is alive and kicking. Uh, It's going too far to say this was a sort of triumph of intelligent voting for the Labour Party, but it showed that all Labour voters, apart from a few, voted tactically, and as you say, similarly in Selby. And there is a kind of pincer movement that I think should worry and well, I know is worrying Conservative MPs, and you got Ed Davey to almost admit it. Um, I must admit, I was quite struck, Libby, by his honesty, which is always quite, you know, it's what you want from an interview, you ask a straight question, and he basically gave the honest answer. <laughs> yeah, I, well, see, I, I mean, I, I, I know where he's coming from, because, I mean, I live in the home of tactical voting. I mean, I live in Suffolk Coastal, and uh, we have these occasionally absolutely brilliantly good and well-liked la- liberal, liberal Democrat councillors and so on, and a lot of people will vote Lib Dem, or whatever they think of the Lib Dems nationally, but A, they like these local councillors, and B, it's the anything but this lot. And at the moment, anything but this lot is a very good political slogan. It's not an intelligent slogan in a way, but it is very (laughs) tempting because uh, Rishi Sunak, who is a decent, sensible, hardworking man, has not had the bottle or the ability to clear out and to defy a lot of his nastier MPs and cabinet colleagues. Therefore, people look at the Tory party in general and think anything but this lot. So yes, I mean, tactical voting is always going to happen. Ed Davey is quite right to admit it and to harvest his resources, you know, harness his resources carefully to um, uh, to use them to best advantage. I mean, rather than fighting where it's hopeless. 
Um, Steve, what about if when you draw that '97 parallel and um, Paddy yeah. Ashdown abandoning equidistance after '92 and sort of, yeah. like you said, basically saying anyone but the Tories, what does Keir Starmer need to do? Because I mean, clearly Tony Tony Blair had lots of talks with Paddy Ashdown and then sort of lots of showing of ankles to all the two of each other. But at the end, one so big he didn't need to give Paddy Ashdown anything in return. Uh, yeah. in '97, it's not. Clear. I mean, it's possible that we could end up in a hung parliament situation where Keir Starmer does need to give that 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 maybe more consideration than Tony Blair did. Yeah, but it's one of the differences compared with the build-up to '97. I mean, Tony Blair saw more of Paddy Ashdown privately and socially and all the rest of it than most of his shadow cabinet. Um, Keir Starmer. I mean, people who advocate tactical voting like Neil Lawson in Labour have been threatened with expulsion. So clearly, it's a different. Uh, place. Uh, but in a way, it doesn't matter. Those by-elections show that voters are deciding for themselves. I mean, you know, it's intelligent voting. Um, what happens after an election, of course, depends on the outcome uh, in a hung parliament. Uh, there would have to be talks between the two of them. But I doubt it. I mean, it's not going to be like uh, Ashdown and Blair. If you read Ashdown's diaries, Ashdown was rarely out of Blair's house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's clearly not going to happen now. And 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 in a way, so it doesn't really need to. Um, there will be tactical voting on a, uh, on a big scale in the next election. Now, Steve's taking his show, Rock and Roll Politics, the Edinburgh Fringe this year. He's not the only one, though. There's an awful lot of politics on the stage at the moment. Let's take a listen. How many of you today, in this final episode of this year's Edinburgh Festival, predict that Liz Truss will win the next UK-wide general election. Okay, I'm recording this for the podcast as well, and I can report sensationally um, very few are making that (laughs) prediction. Well, I'm going to bring in someone who would pose no threat to me at all. Uh, Someone of such limited intellect that they will never pose a threat to my position. So, Matt, surely it is an honour to promote you to the Cabinet. This rotten system is one of the few things this country has manufactured next 40 that hasn't been sent back. Envied the world over for its simplicity. One person, one vote. New Labour, drop the earth, don't cling to it. New Labour, wow, that's got a ring to it. Did you know Rishi Sunak gets up every morning and pretends to be a sizzling hot plate of fajitas? This is the only truth. Rishi Sunak's got one of those pelotons. Got a peloton bike. Anybody got a, got a peloton bike? No, because we're not in London. Um, <laughs> That was Steve Richards, Spitting Image, This House by James Graham, Tony Blair, The Rock Opera, and some bloke talking about politics on stage. Steve, <laughs> it, it is extraordinary, isn't it? That people, the appetite still, what we now, seven years, clearly Brexit was the thing that got people very engaged in politics. The appetite for people explaining politics, being funny about politics, taking the mick out of politicians is huge. I think it really is huge. And they, they want the space. You know, in Edinburgh, you get an hour and you could do London, in London, longer even. And they kind of, my one is, I've seen yours and it's brilliant. And, and, and you, you, you are a stand up. I mean, and you, you, you used to go to Edinburgh and do it. I know. 
I, I kind of see my thing as being a political columnist on stage and the audience is almost <laughs> like the comment desk editor. So I come on each day with an idea to explore, but they can change that. And we, by the end of the show, we've written a column, hopefully with some laughs, um, but kind of try to, I forgot that actually last year when I was there, Johnson was still prime minister. Everyone knew trust was about to be. And how has it all changed? What is the madness <laughs> driving all of this? And you can either play it um, as you do and do a hilarious hour, or um, I kind of say it's more like a columnist on stage, but hopefully with laughs as well. And um, yet there is this huge appetite because I think people are so bewildered. Just get the plug in now, Steve. Where can people see you? Oh, yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, from August the 13th uh, every day at uh, the Surgeons Hall in Hill Square. Very good. At the Edinburgh Fringe, Libby, the Edinburgh Fringe website. Libby, uh, you, as a you know, theatre critic for a long time, do you, do you like politics on the stage? Well, I can do when it's well done. I would say I'm, I'm rather interested in Steve's show because I, I can't afford Edinburgh this year, I have to say. But um, I, I think he sounds interesting. But what I don't like is when you just get the pure, pure mockery from the stand-ups. You know, the, this this kind of. Oh, remember going like to Edinburgh show. once years ago when Malcolm <laughs> Rifkin was Scottish secretary, and the biggest laugh was, "Oh, you can stuff it up your Rifkind." You know, well, that didn't mean anything. It didn't explain anything. I think when it works and isn't just a channel for empty show of hatred it's brilliant i mean james graham of course the great example his play labor of love taught us more about how the labor party is and what its problems are uh, than anything else could there was best of enemies the american one there was this house uh, i mean and that is absolutely brilliant drama and you know the sort of stand-up stuff can be very good too but it has to be done with that sense of intelligent perception of absurdity rather than sort of hatred the whole kind of never kissed a Tory oh I hate them <laughs> you know you get so yeah. many people I mean even really good people like Stuart Lee will often just completely waste 20 minutes just ranting about how much they hate conservatives and that's just boring yeah um, I've got equal think opportunities in my, uh, my, my you, you've mockery. got to hate them both <laughs> yes but also you've got to explain why you've yes. got to pick up the absurdity yeah, yeah, yeah. absurdity is comedy and that's what works either it in a column or in um, or in a show. Steve Richards and Libby Purvis there and you can catch Steve live across the country right now. Just look him up online for tickets and of course you can read Libby in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, when should Rishi Sunak call an election? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Today, I've asked Her Majesty the Queen. I'd like to formally confirm that I've seen Her Majesty the Queen this morning. Well, I've just been to Buckingham Palace. It will come as no surprise to all of you, and it's probably the least well-kept secret of recent years. I've just had an audience with Her Majesty the Queen. I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet. I've uh, just been to see Her Majesty the Queen earlier on. To dissolve this Parliament, and she has agreed to do so. Which is graciously consented to do. The Queen has kindly agreed. We agreed that the government should call a general election. And she agreed to dissolve Parliament for an election. And I want you to know, of course, that I don't want an early election. A general election for a new Parliament will therefore now be held. It will take place on Thursday, 3rd of May, five weeks from today. And a general election on the 1st of May. And there will be a general election in Britain on May the 5th. And a general election will take place on May the 6th. The general election will be held on May the 7th. To be held on the 8th of June. No one much wants to have an election in December, but we've got to the stage where we have no choice. So the big question we're asking today, when should Rishi Sunak go to the country? Does he go early, like Boris Johnson? but risk being like Theresa May. Does he think about it then, bottle it like Jim Callaghan and Gordon Brown or cling on until the bitter end like John Major? Or does he just sit tight and call an election like uh, Tony Blair, David Cameron? We've got some exclusive polling which shows almost four in ten want an election this year and the figure is rising. Well, the received wisdom at Westminster that wishes that will wait until the end of 2024. Technically, he could go as late as January 2025. Well, that would mean campaigning over Christmas. So that seems a bit unlikely. Uh, so he, maybe he waits till the end of next year in the hope that he's made progress on some of his pledges, the economy picks up, and something turns up. But what happened when Jim Callaghan and John Major decided to go long? Is there a case for saying that things could only get worse for the government instead? Maybe, as we've just seen in Spain. Uh, they've called a snap election, they've gone early, and maybe uh, they'll end up clinging on. Well, to discuss the right time to go to the country, uh, we're joined by the pollster and author of Callahan, The Road to Number 10, Peter Cowan. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Matt. And Tim Smith worked in Downing Street under Theresa May, was an advisor in the, in the uh, uh, Cameron government as well. Morning, Tim. Good morning. Uh, but first, uh, we'll, we'll come to you both in a moment. And to, we'll pick our way through the history. First, let's get some more of the detail about the polling from Beth Mann, who's from YouGov. Give us the headline figures, first of all, uh, on this YouGov poll for, for the show. Good morning, Matt. Yes, yeah, so generally people want a general election sooner rather than later. And as you say, our most, most common answer is having it before the end of 2023, with 37% saying so. 
and just 6% want to wait until the latest date of January 2025. And just 7% want it in autumn 2024, which is when the time when people in the Westminster bubble think it's most likely to be. However, it is worth noting, though, that this is very divided down political lines, which is perhaps unsurprising. So the want for an early election is driven mostly by those who want to vote Labour, with 67% saying so. And then amongst Conservatives, actually, most people don't know when they want it to be. They're probably a bit worried about what the result would be. Um, And most also want January 2025. So leaving it as long as possible. And are there differences? Presumably people who want who say they're going to vote Conservative are possibly less enthusiastic about having a um, uh, an early election than people who say they're going to vote Labour or Lib Dem or basically any other party, because if that's how they're going to vote, then maybe they want to get on with it. Yeah, definitely. So only 6% of people intending to vote Conservative want it before the end of 2023. For probably obvious reasons, the Conservatives aren't in a great shape right now. They're not being viewed well. They're not being seen to handle issues well at all. So yeah, for obvious reasons, Conservatives are mu- Conservative voters are much more reluctant to have a, a general election anytime soon. I was interested to see, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not that big a surprise, but Remainers are keener on an early election than Leavers, but men keener on an early election than women as well. Young people more keen on an early election than, than older voters. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's something that perhaps more draws back to political lines rather than it being an age or a gender thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that is interesting. And it's interesting that young people want to have their say now. And perhaps it's because they couldn't have it before. And, and I mean, we asked uh, you to do this poll for us, but presumably uh, politicians will be doing the same thing. Number 10 will be doing the same thing. Uh, one of the things that Theresa May found was she was miles ahead in the polls, but then as soon as she called the election, actually people were just irritated by her doing it. So, so these are sorts of questions, polling questions, that political parties and number 10 will be, will be doing themselves to try and gauge the mood because the timing could actually influence the outcome. Yeah, and it is interesting and something to consider is obviously we've got a voting intention now, but the general election is still a year away and the voting intention can change a lot when a general election is around a corner. We've got a lot of don't knows at the moment and we, we can't tell quite where they'd go. People tend to go back to the party they voted for last time, but there is a lot of uncertainty and things can change when a general election is suddenly around the corner. So it is something to consider for them. Beth, really good speech. Thanks for that. Beth Mann there, research executive from YouGov. You can see more details of that poll. I've just tweeted uh, a link to it, so you can have a look at that online. Right, Tim, Peter, let's take a look now at some of the examples through history that, that maybe Rishi Sunak will be weighing up when considering when to call an election. Let's go all the way back to uh, Jim Callaghan. Speculation in the summer of 1978 that he would go early, call a general election, he didn't. The election ended up happening in May the following year. There was I, waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church, when I found he'd left me in the lurch. Lord, how it did upset me. Peter, Peter Kelder, can you explain what that's about? Uh, yes, um, the, Jim Callaghan uh, did not expect such a tuneful version of that <laughs> in his speech to the TUC, Trade Unions, at the beginning of September 1978. As you say, Matt, there was a lot of speculation. And the punchline of the of that song was, um, uh, uh, she said, um, um, can't get away to marry you today. My wife 
won't let me. I've spared you my singing voice there. Um, <laughs> because, um, and, and, and he was basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hamstrung. Uh, this is not the right time. What had actually happened, Matt, um, was that Labour was going through a rather good patch to Labour government. It had um, clawed its way back to a small lead over the Conservatives. Inflation was around 8%, as it is as it is today. But that was after like four years of double-digit inflation. It was clearly coming down. But um, Labour's pollster, Bob Worcester, did a presentation to Callaghan, I think at the end of August that year, in which he said, actually, you're doing worse in the Labour marginals than in the country as a whole. And that persuaded Callaghan not to go. Now, there was a big row amongst Callaghan's aides. They said, look, the figures are, uh, are too small. You can't draw that conclusion. And indeed, when the election did happen the following year, Labour did rather better in the marginals than elsewhere. So Callaghan may have been given bum advice. In any event, he didn't call the election. We had the winter of discontent and the rest is history. Margaret Thatcher becomes prime minister the following May. So Callaghan probably uh, bottled his best chance. In fact, let's let's have a listen. So this was obviously uh, Jim Callaghan in the 1970s. Uh, all the problems with with the uh, his whittling majority basically uh, evaporated in the House of Commons. Uh, there was then a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons, brought of course by the leader of the opposition, Margaret Thatcher. Let's take a listen to what happened in the Commons. The eyes to the right, 311. The nose to the left, 310. So the eyes have it. Tomorrow, I shall propose to Her Majesty that this House be dissolved, that Parliament be dissolved, as soon as essential business can be cleared up. And I will then uh, announce the date of dissolution, the date of the election, and the date of meeting of the new parliament. Yeah. As Peter was saying there, Margaret Thatcher went on to win that election. I mean, extraordinary bit of audio uh, from uh, the House of Commons. But history, as it always does in politics, repeats itself. Fast forward to 2007, Gordon Brown becomes Prime Minister, and speculation mounts pretty quickly. Uh, that after he's done pretty well over the, that first summer in charge, maybe he'll go to the country. They've got as far as booking advertising space, cars, uh, limousines, battle buses. Uh, but um, uh, the party's former general secretary, Peter Watts, said he told Gordon Brown that, he could, what, that what he couldn't do was march everyone to the top of the hill and then back down again. But unfortunately, that is exactly what he did. Here is Gordon Brown speaking in the autumn of 2007 to Andrew on the BBC. I believe the public, their priority was not an election, but that we got on with the job. But having made the decision, I made it for the reasons I'm saying. I want a chance to show the country that we have a vision for the future of this country. And yes, I could have a mandate or want a mandate for competence, but I want a mandate to show the vision of the country that I have is being implemented in practice. Um, Tim Smith, let's bring you in there. That was uh, not only... Uh, was it uh, maybe a, a mistake on Gordon Brown's part because he, he was never doing as well in the polls after that? If he had gone, he may well have won. But the very act of bottling it, as uh, as critics said, you know, in fact, I remember the Tory Party conference, I think, being handed bottles of brown, bottle of brown ale, uh, taking the mick out of him. That was seen as a as a massive point of weakness. The very fact of him marching everyone to the top of the hill and marching them back down again. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and I think. Um... For, for the voters, it spoke to something uh, that people began to see about Gordon Brown's personality. 
he wasn't um he didn't carry the strength that tony blair did um and really this was a kind of uh proof point as it were that allowed voters to um have something to say about um this new prime minister uh that called that accorded to the perception they had and i think um in a sense whether or not it's calling an election or some other policy issue where a decision is taken, um, this can become one of those issues that uh, really sets the kind of perception of the character of a prime minister. Um, and I think, you know, when um, we experienced it with, uh, with, with Theresa May in 2017, um, uh, up until that point, um, the prime minister had been seen as a kind of stable organizing figure that had consistency. She would do what she said. Um, and really the decision to call an, call an election early, having promised the country that she wouldn't was almost the kind of the, the original sin. Yeah. And it conditioned how every decision that was taken later on in that campaign was perceived. Um, so even if that in itself didn't necessarily move the polls, it then became a kind of character point in the way that for Gordon Brown in 2007, the kind of failure to call the election became a kind of character point that he was someone who, who bothered it. And you're absolutely right about the beer. In fact, I still have a bottle in my home. I was, I was moving some rooms around yesterday. Uh, and um, I'm pretty sure buried away in CCHQ, there'll still be a stock if they haven't been consumed yet. I would not drink that, Tim. I would not drink Matt, that. Matt, yes, Peter. Matt, can I go say that actually Gordon Brown had bottled it about three weeks before uh, he announced there wasn't going to be an election. And he called it at the beginning of September, before the party conferences. I'm pretty sure Labour um, would, have, would, would have won, or at least done a lot better than they did. But what happened is the party conferences did take place, and very early on in the Tory party, conference, George Osborne, then the shadow chancellor, made his big announcement about cutting inheritance tax. And I remember I was, I was then um, president of YouGov, and we did a poll that night, and suddenly we saw overnight Labour's quite big leads crash. Um, and I remember seeing these figures, I think on the, on the Wednesday, and saying, there isn't going to be an election because Brown can't possibly hold yeah. it out. And indeed, that's what happened. We now know that there was private polling going on that week um, uh, uh, for the for uh, Brown, and they were showing the same thing. The Labour's leader crashed. So that's when Brown announced, we're not going to have an early election. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting that the, 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 basically you can't win. If you uh, look like you're going to have an election and then you don't, that's bad. And then if you say you're not going to have an election and then you do, that's also bad. Let's just, Tim explain it, but let's just take a listen. This is Theresa May speaking first in September 2016, a few months after she became Prime Minister, and then outside Downing Street in April 2017. Under you, is that absolutely certain that we're not going to see an election before I'm, 2020? I'm, I'm not going to be calling a snap election. I've been very clear that I think we need that period of time, that stability, to be able to deal with the issues that the country is facing and have that election in 2020. I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. And as we all know, she went on to lose her majority. Um, what, Tim, does that give you sort of PTSD listening back to that? It does slightly. It does slightly. <laughs> it was um, uh, a time of intense hard work and and pleasure, as all as all general elections can uh, can end up being. And um, uh, I think, I, I mean, actually, at that point, we had a tremendous degree of optimism 
uh, to be frank. I think, um, as is very well known, the number of people involved in the taking of decisions holds uh, an early general election was very, very small. Um, I think I was in the kind of um, the, the kind of second circle in that I got about 24 hours notice of it. And actually, the um, the feeling was uh, one of incredible nerves, but also excitement. I mean, at that, at that point, we were riding high in the polls. Um, and also, there was a kind of clear explanation for why it was justified. Um, and I think if you look at Look at individuals who have called early elections. Um, there's always been a really strong forcing mechanism that is separate to polls. So um, in 2019, when Boris called a snap election, it was because he was unable to get his Brexit deal through um, and obviously reaped a, an electoral reward from it. And when Theresa called an early election, um, regardless of what was going on in the polls, there was a similar forcing mechanism in yeah. that we were about to undergo the largest negotiation that that Britain had been through in the post post world post World War era, and um, it was likely that those negotiations would run into the timing of the next election. So there was a kind of there was a mechanism driving it that was not just um, people telling the Prime Minister you're very very popular, and if you call an election next week, then you'll likely win. So that's the argument. I'm not sure it's right to say in the end you made a mistake in calling an early election. Uh, the Tories stayed ahead in the polls for three or four weeks after the announcement. Indeed, I think two weeks after the announcement, we had local elections across Britain. The Conservatives did incredibly uh, well. The problem was the policy on social care. That was done in secret, just a few people. They screwed up. Theresa May looked dreadful. Um, and announcing it, that was when the Tory lead crashed. Had they not screwed up social care, they would have won a comfortable victory. And would have said, what a wise decision to pull an early election. <laughs> We're taking a look at when Rishi Sunak should call a general election. We've got polling, exclusive polling for this show, which shows 37%, almost 4 in 10, want him to call a general election before the end of the year. Uh, more than half want an election by uh, next spring. I've asked on Twitter for people to vote. More proof that Twitter, whatever we call it this, these days, are not the same as Britain. Uh, 65% want a general election this year, so twice as many as, uh, as the actual uh, general public. Still joined by Peter Kellner and uh, Tim Smith. Uh, Peter Kellner, a pollster, and Tim Smith uh, worked in Down Street under Theresa May and had lots of other jobs in government too. Right, we've talked about the, the pros and cons of going early. What about hanging on and on and on and hoping that something turns up? Very much the approach taken, actually, in the end by Gordon Brown and John Major in 1997. Well, here is Danny Finkelstein, Times columnist, regular on the show, former advisor to John Major, speaking about exactly that on the show a couple of weeks ago. It's obvious to me in retrospect, having worked when I worked for John Major, that if we hadn't gone long, right to the end of the period we had in office, right into 1997 uh, and right into the May period, we, we probably would have lost by a bit less. It got worse all the time as we carried on. The problem is that any time before then you were calling an election knowing you were going to lose and nobody wants to do that. They're under a lot of pressure from MPs not to do that. They don't want to do it themselves. They always think something good's going to be round the corner. Now, I, so they Therefore, it is definitely the correct piece of strategic advice, which is there'll come a point where um, if the economy doesn't pick up, if, if you think predictably that it won't, then you probably ought to go, you know, uh, possibly in May rather than pushing it right to October or even beyond that to December. Uh, but it's extremely difficult advice both to proffer 
and to and to take. Yeah. One of the reasons that politicians don't want to take that, it's a bit like, there's, there's a thing about penalties, right, in football. If you shoot the penalty in the middle of the goal, that is the most likely way to score, but it's the most embarrassing way to miss. And so people <laughs> don't do it. So in exactly the same way, Prime Ministers do not wish to call an election at a time where people will say, I can't believe you called an election at such a stupid time. And where they'll then spend the rest of their life with people saying, um, you know, you were so hubristic, you thought you'd win in May. And they can hardly go into that election saying, I think I'm going to lose. They have to claim they're going to win. So my view is that is sound advice, but it won't be taken. Peter, what do you make of that argument? It's a really interesting one. That, that, that sometimes going early might be the right thing to do, but if particularly for Rishi Sunak, it's a question of limiting the impact of a defeat rather than any prospect of winning. That's a hard sell to someone who thinks, yeah, but I could just be prime minister for another year. No, they, exactly. When you get to, say, around four years, you know, successful governments like Margaret Thatcher's, like Tony Blair's, they will usually call the election after four years. If it's clear they're ahead, they're very likely to win. And that came off for Margaret Thatcher, it came off for, for, for Tony Blair, in both cases, twice. Um, but if you get if you get to four years and you're clearly behind, then you don't ask yourself, will we do better in a year's time than now, you say to yourself, if we go now, we will lose. If we stay on for a, another year, there's maybe a one in 10 chance, even a one in 20 chance, we might just pull it off. And a one in 20 chance versus a naught in 20 chance, <laughs> you go long. Um, Tim, what's your calculation of what Rishi Sidak might be making? Is it just cling on and hope that something turns up? And if you are heading for defeat anyway, at least you've had another 12 months in power? Well, I think what they'll be telling themselves in number 10 is that they have a plan that they believe in, they believe is the right one for the country and also has the potential to be electorally popular. The five um, the uh, five priorities that the Prime Minister outlined at the start of the career, you know, they, they do poll well as being politically salient and being the right priorities for the country. You know, what matters is the extent to which they can demonstrate progress against them before the next election comes. And I think um, that argument of, uh, well, it might be better to lose by a smaller margin now, I, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to pay attention to that because, quite frankly, if you if you lose at all, you lose absolutely in, in politics. If you're out of government, you're out of government. And, um, uh, you know, playing playing for that chance of the kind of the, the one in 10, one in 20 uh, possibility that Peter outlines is is absolutely where um, where the Conservative Party will be planning for the moment. So go on then. I suppose the, the, the last question I need to ask you both is when do you think the next election will be? Uh, if you were advising them right now, Tim, what would be your... If you were in number 10 now, what would you suggest? I would suggest no urgency whatsoever. Um, uh, take take the time uh, that the government thinks it will take to uh, for the economy to turn around, for progress against the priorities. And I'd also use that time. I think um, you don't want to... You don't want to draw too many inferences from by-elections, but um, uh, what what you can tell is that local campaigns could uh, play a decisive role in some seats, um, and the and the and the Conservative Party should be using this time now to select candidates early, not because elect the electorate vote for the biographies of their candidates, but because it allows those candidates to pick the priorities and the potential uh, local campaigns that might make a difference in those seats. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Peter Kelly, when's the election going to be? Uh, well, I don't. I think they'll go long, um, as, as Tim says. I don't think, for the reasons you gave earlier, Matt, I don't think they'll go to January 25. Nobody, voters, candidates, party workers, nobody wants to be doing this over Christmas and the New Year. So it comes down to the autumn, and I think the choice is basically 
whether you announce the election in September before and therefore cancel the party conferences, or do you wait until after the party conferences? Now, the Conservatives, unlike this year, which is odd, next year, the Conservatives will have the last party conference. So they may say to themselves, that's a great launch pad. Have the party conference and then an anti-election. On the other hand, party conferences are very time-consuming. Um, they, you know, they, they, they take a lot of bandwidth of, of, of running anything. So what I'm not sure is whether they'll announce it in early September, skip the party conferences, have the election in October, or they'll announce the election in October, have it maybe early November. That's where I think the choice will lie. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to post a review wherever you get your podcast from. Let me know what you think. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Pat Cholly, it's goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.